Why is object-oriented programming so great? Hello, my name is Eric Normand, and I help people thrive with functional programming. And as a functional programming advocate, a lot of what I say often sounds like I don't like object-oriented programming. So I would like to talk about in this episode, nothing but things that I like about OO. This is purely an opinion piece, like most of my uh, episodes. Uh, but I feel like I've studied object-oriented programming uh, in college from a sort of you know Java-centered approach. I've also studied um, the early papers about small talk and study a lot of Alan Kay's work and never actually written anything in small talk, but I've played with the, I played with squeak, you know, I, I, I've kind of gotten some insights into it. So I'm not like an expert or anything, uh, but I feel like I understand enough about it to be self-aware about why um, why object-oriented programming could be powerful, where things are going wrong in the world of Java and things like that. Uh, so I would like to just go over some of the things that I really like about object-oriented programming. Um, before, before I do that, I would like to say that I think that uh, closure wouldn't exist without the object model that exists on the JVM. Uh, it uses it to, I think, really great effect. Most of Clojure is written in Java. So it definitely uses the features of Java, the OO features of Java, to implement its features. You know, functions are just objects. There's a class called fn, fun. There's an interface called IFN, and all of the core abstractions are developed as interfaces. So I think that there's a, a there's a it's not it's not clear that there needs to be such a strong division between object-oriented and functional programming. I think they can complement each other very well. Uh, I, I think it's neat that FP, an FP language closure, is built on top of the object-oriented principles of the JVM. I think that's really neat. I think that's awesome. So I'm going to go over, what is this, one, two, three, a few, three or four points uh, uh, that I think are really cool about OO. All right, here we go. So the first thing is that messages provide a layer of indirection. Uh, this layer of indirection is used for several things in most languages. Uh, when, you, when you send a message, the message has a name and then it has some arguments. And this name provides a, a bit of semantics, some meaning 
to the the message you're passing and it's usually a human layer meaning right like it's 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 in english or some you know human language and so it's not something the computer can understand directly um but it's an important layer of indirection because it lets you do polymorphism so by that specifically i mean that the receiving object can be a different class as long as the message name is the same the object receiving it can be different and you could have different results so that's that's uh that's polymorphism and it will it lets you separate out the the caller from the callee uh, meaning you can hide the implementation details. The caller should not have to care how it's implemented. Now, all this just comes naturally out of indirection. Any layer of indirection should do that, should provide some kind of hiding. That I'm indirecting through this so I don't have to know what's on the other side. Just like indirection in real life, like some kind of escrow service, uh, I don't need to know um you know when the person is going to get their money i put the money in this place and then they get it later right um and so that it's it's just a layer of indirection that serves to separate out the caller from the callee that's that's super important in programming it also this message layer lets you do late binding uh some oo languages will use the run the sorry the static types to decide what method to call based on the message but smalltalk didn't really have that everything was late bound and that's what allows for polymorphism in a, in a, in a lot of ways that I don't know when I'm when I'm calling when I'm sending this message I don't know what the receiver is going to do with it. Uh you know there's always the hope that it will understand the message and do what I think it means, right? But you don't know what's going to do it. And this is important when you're building a system of any size because you don't know how the system is going to work in general and every change you have to make uh will means that you will have to uh if if you don't have polymorphism it means you'll have to change both sides the caller and the callee because the caller now has to send the message to a different type of thing it might require a change on both sides changing the thing the callee and changing the caller to match the callee. But with late binding, the caller is really uh, insulated from the change of callee. Meaning I can define a new type of number. And let's say I wanna make a, a complex number class. And it implements plus and times and divide and minus and all the things that I consider important for numbers. 
And now I can plug that right in and it works in all of my existing code. No recompiling, nothing. It just works. That's late binding. And as your system evolves, there's always going to be new stuff and new, uh, new requirements that come in. You, you learn and you want to be able to change the system, but you want your changes to be isolated so you don't have to change everything. And that's what, that's what late binding gives us. Uh, it also gives us a dispatch point. You can look at it in another way. Um, in FP, even in typed FP, you often have different, uh, different values uh, that are part of the same type, and you want to do a different thing based on the value. So you, the classic case is something like uh, you have a maybe type optional value, uh, you either have the value or you don't. And so you want to do a different thing if you have the value, and if you don't have the value, do something else. Uh, this assumes you know all the possible values. And that means that if you need to add a new value to that type, uh, then you're going to have to go change all the call sites. Right? Again, you've you've... Uh, you've tightly coupled with early binding so the indirection is partial it's not real right because you still uh, the caller is still not totally separated from the callee and so in FP what you do is like a case statement or an if statement some kind of branch on the value uh, if it's just the value, you know, if you have the value, do this. If you don't have the value, do that. Well, in OO, it kind of reverses that. Instead of choosing the function first and then in the function you branch, uh, OO says first look at the type of the thing, right? Or first look at the class, so what value is it, and then ask it to figure out what the operation should do. So that's like method lookup. So let me say this again. In FP, you uh, the name of the function you're calling will determine the function. And then inside that function, you do some kind of dispatch, like a branch, based on the value. Okay, so it's a little dynamic because you have to check at runtime, do I have the value or do I not have the value? In OO, it's reversed. First, you look at the value, and that means looking up its class, the value's class. And then in the class, you're doing this dispatch of look up the name of the method. And then that'll give you the method, and then you call it. So it's, it's the exact opposite order of things. The class is primary. The value is primary in OO, whereas in FP, the function is primary. And by doing this reversal, I think this is one of the magic tricks of OO. It's like one of the, it's it's kind of like a, a jewel. Like it's just one idea, but it gives you all these little benefits. Uh, but by this one reversal of 
letting the type, the value itself, determine how the operation should work. It means you can you don't have this closed world assumption anymore. Again, the caller can be separated from the callee. The caller no longer has to worry about what value it's going to be sending this to. Once it sends the message, the the callee can determine what to do with it, what is appropriate for it, for you know how its semantics, for its way of representing things. And so this lets you uh, add new cases totally ad hoc without changing the caller. Again, it's another way of scaling your system. Every message pass is like you're able to divide your system in half, the side that's calling and the side that's being called, and, and it's a very clean break. And so you don't have to... Um, you can modify one side without modifying the other. That's what layers of indirection are supposed to do. And systems that don't give us those layers of indirection become very uh, tightly coupled. So OO is all about this ability to separate out the, the caller from the callee and give us these, this uh, important level of indirection. So um, just to summarize, uh, it gives us polymorphism, right? It lets us add in new uh, cases, or let's let's call it new types of values, new classes uh, that fit right in to an existing use. Uh, I gave the example of a complex number can now, if you implement all the right methods, boom, it can go into a formula that you developed using integers, for instance, and it'll just fit right in because you're just calling the same operations on it, and so why not? The caller had no idea that that was even important. Uh, it allows for uh, late binding, which means you can redefine things even after they've started being used, right? Uh, it, it also allows for like dynamic recompilation. I can modify the code of this one class without having to recompile all the other classes because it's just an indirection. It's a message pass. Um, finally, this late binding idea and it lets you be open. I can add new classes, new cases, new types of values uh, that I didn't have to anticipate and I don't have to change the caller. So it's all about this indirection. This indirection is about, it's basically a humility. It is saying, I don't know how this system is going to evolve. I don't know the requirements, you know, six months from now, two weeks from now. I don't know how things are going to change. I'm going to learn things along the way. I don't know everything right now. And so I'm, things are going to change. 
and I want to have to change as little as possible. Some code should still work even though I change a lot of it. It's, it's a way to scale. And at, in any project, when you first start, you know almost nothing about it. You know, programmers are like scientists. We're like empirical scientists. We go into a domain and we don't know how it should work. And we try things, we make hypotheses, and we test out whether this will make a good model of the system. And sometimes we get pretty far, but then we get stuck and we need to go back to the drawing board and make a new model. That's, that's, that's what we do. We're like little scientists. And we don't know how things should work. We, but often we get a lot right on, in the process. We can see that little things, yes, we do understand those things. So we can break those off into small pieces that are totally encapsulated. Again, this is a great thing for OO, total encapsulation of things. And those things might stick around for a really long time because they were really well understood. And that understanding was encoded in their interface. Some things we got wrong, especially the bigger things more chances for mistakes. And so we had to rework those. And we don't want to rework the other parts that use those things. We just want to rework the thing itself. And so I see OO as this um, admission that we are, we don't know. And the only way to know is to go in and, and find out and try it out. Try to encode this knowledge as a, as a program and see how it looks, see how it works. And we can't do that if every time we try to change something, we have to make it, we have to change the thing calling it as well. So it's an open world assumption. That just means Here's the stuff I know. I know there's other stuff that I don't know yet, but this is what I know. <laughs> it's basically what it means. And that's built into OO. Okay, so I've said um, I think a lot of good things about OO. And I'm sure that I'm sure that people won't uh People will still continue to think that I, I don't like OO at all because I say some things. I, I talk about some of its limitations, but um, I do like OO. I think there's a lot of good stuff there. So thank you very much. This has been my thought on functional programming. My name is Eric Normand. Uh, if you like this episode, you can find other episodes at lispcast.com slash podcast. There you'll find all the past episodes with text, transcripts, video, and audio. And there will be links to subscribe on like podcasts via YouTube um, or RSS if you like the, the text. Uh, you can also find links to find me on social media like email 
or Twitter or LinkedIn, and I love to get into discussions. So if this episode was meaningful to you, either you're pro, you agree with me, or you're con, you disagree with me, uh, let me know, and we'll talk about it. Because this is all, this is all about this. Is what this is for? It's me broadcasting so I can talk to more people who who like these ideas. You don't have to agree with me. Just have to like talking about them. Awesome. Uh, thanks for listening and rock on. <laughs>